More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is October 27th, 2019, and you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., on a Sunday, and that means one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Chelsea Beheimer. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Carla Juretsky in the College of Forestry, and she is specifically in the Forest Ecosystems and Society Department, co-advised by Dr. Steve Wanzel and Kevin Bladen, and you are a fifth-year student. Welcome to the show, Carla. What took you so long to join us? <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. <laughs> so in the five years that you have been in the College of Forestry, You've had some time to narrow down to a specific area of research. What are, what are you up to these days? That's right. So I've been studying forest ecosystems and specifically soils and hydrology. And my research looks specifically at soil moisture across uh, the landscape. And I, I do my work in the Western Cascades of Oregon, so very local. And I look at how um, soil moisture varies across the landscape and what implications that has for trees. Wow, that's uh, that seems like a lot in one project. So heard a lot of things in there that maybe some of us out there may be less familiar with than others. I know Adrian is also in the College of Forestry <laughs> and he gets really excited about what you're talking about. So when we when we spoke to you at first, I was just like, wait, what what are all these words? So soil, I think, was something that really struck me. Nobody seems to really be able to define it. Can you define soil? What does it mean to you in your research? Yeah, I think People define it in a lot of different ways depending on their experience with soil. So soil scientists might have a very specific definition. Um, but I, I thought about this because you asked me before. <laughs> so, um, and I was asked, also, shout out to Jeff Hatton. He asked me this in my oral exam. So <laughs> oh, nice. listening. he'll be proud. Um, so soil is like made up of 
solids, liquid, liquids, and gases. So we're going to start very basic. So we have these three components, and the solids is specifically how we think about soil, like it's a medium. Mm -hmm. there's, there's stuff there, we can touch it and feel it. And the solids are made up of minerals and organic matter. And we often try to define soils by the functions they serve. And so I, I thought about this, and um, typically soils have distinct layers, or mm -hmm. we refer to them as horizons. And these horizons develop over time by the transfer, like additions, losses, or transfer of energy and matter. And so you can think about uh, how how like it came soil came from something and that something is typically rocks mm -hmm. and so it's very tied up in in the geology or the underlying parent material but we can also define soil as supporting plants or life and so if you think about uh maybe more people can relate to soil as potting soil you mm -hmm. know it doesn't have distinct horizons or layers but it still can support life um so it kind of depends on uh, who is thinking about <laughs> soil, how to define it. it, can be very different. Yeah. So what kind of soil are we looking at in the eastern, in the western Cascades, eastern Cascades? Yeah, so the west slopes of the Cascades. Um, so yeah, we, we break the Cascade Mountain range up into the high Cascades and the west Cascades. And the west slope is very different uh, from the east slope because of the amount of precipitation that falls. So the climate changes dramatically mm -hmm. um, because of the mountain range. And um, the soils there are from volcanic origin. Um, so they have very unique properties. And we look at, my research looks at how these properties can affect water holding capacity and drainage of water. And I've been more in more recent years really focused on how much water the soils can hold because mm -hmm. that has huge implications in Oregon because of the dry season. So there's a period of time in Oregon when it hardly rains that usually starts in July and extends through September. And so during this period, um, people are, these people being forest managers, people that depend on forests for various functions, um, but specifically growing trees is like a huge industry in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And um, these managers are worried that forests might take a hit in the future if the summer dry season gets longer and hotter. And so we're wondering, what is the role of soil moisture in these landscapes? Are the trees getting enough water? And how might that change in the future? Okay. Wow. So it sounds like depending on how you define the soil, moisture can be more or less available very differently here than, let's say, someplace else. So you have to really look specifically here. So how do you measure moisture in the soil and, and how it's moving? That's a really good question. So <laughs> It's hard. It's very <laughs> difficult. Um, you can measure it a lot of different ways. I'm going to tell you about the way that I measure it because I know it best. Mm -hmm. um, so I use um, a method called time domain reflectometry. So that's super jargony, I know. <laughs> but basically you put metal into the ground and we, they're uh, 
in this case, stainless steel welding rods. So very, like I think an eighth inch diameter. And you can make these metal probes um, at various lengths. So you can measure different depths of the soil and integrate over that depth. Um, and when this metal is placed in the ground, we can send an electrical current along that metal rod. And the time at which that um, pulse of electricity, electricity travels along the rod and the velocity can be translated to the amount of water that's mm -hmm. in the soil. And so we have equations uh, that people have developed many decades ago using this method to look specifically at soil moisture. Um, I think this is kind of interesting, actually. The instrument I was using was first used to look for breaks in telephone line. Whoa. Yeah, so they would hook this instrument up to telephone line and send this pulse down, and depending on how quickly it returned, they know, oh, okay, the, the break is this far from us. And so scientists are very creative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the person that came up with this method just sort of took off, and it's like, oh, we can use this method as a proxy for looking at soil moisture. And so every method is not, it's, it's not perfect, mm -hmm. right? Like, so we often have to think about, well, what about our specific soil could influence that signal? Mm -hmm. And so minerals, clay particles, things like that can, can make that signal messy, but... Um, it's a pretty good way to, as a relative measure of soil moisture, if you want to look at uh, a lot of sites over space, it's a, it's a good method for that. Speaking of a lot of sites over space, mm -hmm. you focus on about a football-sized area at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest. And before we talk about the forest, mm -hmm. can you put us in your shoes when you're doing field work? Mm -hmm. What do you see are you on a trail? Are there some trees, few trees? How steep is it? Mm, yeah. So I was shocked when I first came to my field site. I was like, whoa, because I came from working at a field site for my master's in near Dayton, Ohio. Very, very flat. I worked on wetland soils. Um, and I grew up in Nebraska. I did my <laughs> master's there, but worked in Ohio. And we'll get back and, to that point. Yeah, so my, <laughs> my, I guess, relationship with soil science was in these very flat places that had been heavily impacted by agriculture, and the soils were um, very homogenous compared to what I'm looking at now. So forest soils, especially in steep places, um, are extremely heterogeneous. So the first thing I'll say, you walk, you walk up a trail... So uh, there is a trail that goes to my um, research site, and it's about a quarter mile to where I set up my sites. And you start by climbing this trail up into the watershed. So you start at the mouth of the stream, and this, this is a headwater stream. So it's where uh, water is originating, coming out of springs out of the ground, and mm -hmm. then flowing into larger and larger mm -hmm. streams. Um, so you walk up there, and it's densely forested. It has been harvested in the past, 19, early 1960s. Um, so it's a middle-aged forest. Um, the trees are about 30, 40 centimeters in diameter. And 
but it's very dense because it's never been thinned. And mm. so there's not only these, and I, for those of you that know Oregon forest, it's primarily Douglas fir. Um, so it's, it's also kind of homogenous in the sense that it's a, it's a plantation of Douglas fir. They planted that um, tree there. And so you have these trees, but you also have this really lush understory. And so there's all of this vegetation growing around the trees. And so you're walking along and you're, you're just seeing this diversity of plants that for me was, I, I guess, the uh, the trait, the characteristic that was first, you know, first, I guess, um, my first impression of the forest was the vegetation, mm. how complex it is. Speaking of the vegetation, if you're standing on this hillside, can you even see your feet with how thick the vegetation is? No, I mean, <laughs> your feet are buried, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point. So it's, it can be often up to your waist or higher, the understory plants. Um, and if you go into old growth forests, so these trees that are 150 years or older, then the understory, it's incredible. You know, you have plants growing um, that are taller than you and just the incredible diversity in vertical structure mm. um, in that forest. We could be right next to each other and hear each other, but not be able to see each other, even right. though we're so close, just because of how thick the understory vegetation is. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could. And then so I guess, yeah, vegetation, really complex, diverse, very green, lush, mm -hmm. typical Pacific Northwest forest. Um, so a lot of moss <laughs> um, and the moss is fascinating. I don't get me started on moss, but <laughs> and then lichen. So um, just just seeing all the diversity of the vegetation was really really cool, and um, it got me really excited to work there. And then I started digging in the soil, and I was like, oh, what did I get myself into here? <laughs> so the soil is extremely rocky, um, and I guess as as far as the landscape goes, it just to give people a visual, the slopes are about 35 degrees on average. If you look across the whole 100 hectare watershed, I think the average slope is thir around 35 degrees. So we're talking steep slopes. That's, I think, that's, I think probably uh, just as steep, if not steeper than looking up Reeser Stadium, if you were like to walk up those Right. Yeah. Oh, that's like a the, really good way to it's a good picture it. Yeah. Except mm -hmm. instead of having like a pathway with nice defined steps, there's like blueberry bushes and poison ivy and poison oak like grabbing at you each and every step of the way up and then you can't actually see the ground. So like you mm -hmm. might be stepping in a hole or you might be stepping on a down log and and then you like hit your face with some other branches <laughs> and it's really steep, so you've gone ten feet and you're like out of breath and Yeah. Well, you know how field work goes. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> on this field work thing, so you mm. guys have both been to H.J. Andrews. You're describing this really dense, beautiful, diverse forest on this steep terrain. 
And that sounds like a lot of places that most of us in Oregon who like to get outside go hiking, but mm-hmm. we're usually on a trail that's maintained and we're looking at all of that <laughs> diversity and maybe step off the trail to take a photo. But you sent us a picture for the blog where you're in a hard hat, you're carrying all this gear, and I did not see any evidence of trails. So tell me what that's like, because you're hiking over this huge area and are you putting the sensors in or... Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. So the f- that's um, gotten really good shape. So <laughs> the the footing is difficult there. So I mentioned it's very rocky, but it it's also I don't know a good word for this, but all I can come up w- is with is loose. The soils mm-hmm. are very loose, so they're not they're not compacted as you would walk on a trail. Those are compacted soils. Mm-hmm. They're easy. You have uh, walking is not difficult. You're not sliding with every step like you do when you walk on the beach. You know, you, you have some um, movement under your feet. And so that, that movement is happening there um, with every step. You're on a steep slope, so there is, um, you know, gravity is acting <laughs> to move the soil away from your, you know, as you step and soil's moving down slope. But also just because of how young the soils are there and how um, the top soil is a lot of organic matter and mm-hmm. um, material that's very low density. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to describe this very well, but it's like, you know, you feel when I first started, it was like, wow, I'm being so destructive to Uh, the soil that I'm about to study. So I very quickly had to make my own trail system. Hmm. I did not veer off trail. um, Because anyone that knows things about hiking in backcountry or, you know, you want to, well, it depends on where you are, but in places that there's a lot of visitors, that's why we build trail systems, right? So we don't impact um, the environment. You know, if you're in a place that's in the wilderness and very few people go there, it's actually better to kind of spread out. That will decrease your impact. But in this case, I knew I would be visiting these sites multiple times um, to take measurements. So yeah, I eventually had a trail system, which made it easier. But the beginning, it was really difficult. And it was just reading the train. And at one point, you know, I was working with um, Aaron Rachels. He he started scouting and developing the... uh, system of sensors with me and at one point we were like I think it's easier to slide down on our behind here like we got we got to sit down and just slide (laughs) it's too scary to walk downhill because it was so steep so yeah I mean it was difficult but it was also really fun (laughs) for anyone that enjoys just being outside and exploring new places that was very exciting for me and I really enjoyed the beginning part of my research and setting up the sites Okay, so that was the beginning. So after the fun, the fun field work, what what are you really looking at in terms of your data? Yeah, data. <laughs> so, um, so I'm in the process of, you know, looking at what I just described was looking at soil moisture over space. And Adrian said it's, um, you know, you can think about it as a football field size. I think it might be a little bigger than that even. Um, But 
we were asking the question about how the topography or the shape of the terrain influences soil moisture availability for plants. And so we set up the sites on um, hill slope hollows and adjacent ridges. And so because it's so deep and you have um, movement of sediment and water over time, you get these, everyone's seen it, um, maybe you haven't thought about it, but you get these, the landscape has this shape of hollows and ridges. Mm. And so we, want, we were curious, well, is there more water in places where we, we think there should be more water? And be, we were curious about this because this is a common assumption in efforts right now by science scientists to model soil moisture across large spaces of the landscape and then predict how vegetation might respond to the availability of water. So if you were to predict where would there be more water in a hollow, which is shaped like a bowl, mm-hmm. or the adjacent ridge, where would you guess there would be more water? In, in the hollow. Right. That's <laughs> what we said, too. So we're like, let's just see if this concept holds in here, because mm-hmm. no one has really looked at this in these steep places. And it's a concept that is underpinned, that, it, that does underpin a lot of models. It's one of those things that we've taken it for granted, that there should be more water in these, you know, bowls or hollows. <clears throat> but your efforts were like, Let's see if this is true. Exactly. And that, you know, that was really initiated by previous or um, inspired by previous work at the H.J. Andrews Forest. And there, you know, I think this is a really important topic right now is drought sensitivity. Um, And the soils seem to be the missing component in our Mm -hmm. understanding of forests. So there's been a lot of research on the above ground uh, succession of forests and a lot of research in the streams, but I think uh, scientists there and around the world are really interested in how the terrestrial landscape connects to streams and above ground vegetation. So that's kind of inspired this whole field of research called eco hydrology. So mm-hmm. how like biology or ecology interacts with hydrology. That's so surprising to me that soil's kind of been the missing component because in talking to you, it sounds like much of the hydrology is moving through the soil. So you would Mm -hmm. need to understand that. So that's really, and so are are you finding that your data is kind of supporting this general assumption that there's more water in these hollows? Actually, no, quite the opposite. Um, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so... Um, there's still a lot more work to be done to understand at what scale that concept holds true, I think. Mm-hmm. So I won't, I don't want to negate that this, you know, I don't want to say this concept is not valid at all. It could be valid. It just might not be valid at the scale I'm looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I found surprisingly is that the ridges next to the hollows were wetter. Mm-hmm. And so that motivated me to dig more holes and take more <laughs> soil samples and look at the properties of the soils. Um, and for listeners, if you're thinking, oh, how deep <laughs> can a soil pit be? Well, uh, Carla, as, as one of her many things she took on for her project, dug quantitative soil pits where we 
quantified every gram of material coming out of a meter cube. And if you check out our uh, Twitter page, it's at KBVRID, uh, you have a picture of a meter deep soil pit. Um, there's also, of course, the blog that you can find at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration that has more pictures of a huge meter deep cube worth of soil that, well. Yeah, big undertaking. And yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, I've dug, I've dug soil pits. I got this. Well, these pits have huge rocks and... <laughs> It's just a massive undertaking. Especially um, when you're on steep slopes. Yeah, and not not just rocks, but large roots because these trees have structural roots that you yeah. sometimes run into and have to have a saw to break wow. through. Um, but yeah, the quantitative soil pits was a really fun project because it was a team of us there. What, what would you say, Adrian, like eight, seven, eight people? Seven, eight people takes a whole day to move, to dig one cube of soil. And I think we moved like 40,000 pounds of material. Yeah. Wow. In, in a cube. That's incredible. <clears throat> but you know what? That really speaks to how interesting your data was to you. And I mean, <clears throat> if, that, if you're inspired to dig more <laughs> holes with that amount of material movement and that amount of people, I mean, you obviously there's something interesting going on. So that's right. That's really cool. Yeah. The, and, you know, back to the conceptual model of this, like water flows downhill yeah. and water flows along these gradients of elevation mm -hmm. because of gravity. And um, I think this could be happening, but at deeper depths, right? So oh. it, it might be that this, so I should mention that I only looked at soil moisture in the top 60 centimeters, um, but I took measurements of soil uh, depth to bedrock to where we couldn't get a, a rod any deeper. It was um, hitting bedrock at that point or potentially large buried boulders. And in a lot of places, the soil was over five meters deep. Wow. So there's a, a lot going on there and it's really variable. Um, and so the, the, movement of water or the interaction of where water pools or where the water table forms and how that interacts and with the soils mm -hmm. that could just be taking place at a deeper depth right and especially in the cascades where we have a mediterranean climate where we have four months with no rain trees are still alive uh -huh. they're still you know respiring and the obvious thing they need is where is the water but if soils are five meters plus deep, they're getting water from somewhere and the creeks still run. Yeah. And so a, where is that water coming from? And Right. And a common assumption is the trees have very shallow roots. So I think most people might think of their roots as extending two meters at most, but most of the roots being concentrated in the top meter. And so that that's why we were really interested in the top meter of soil is that's where we think the mo most of the roots are. But there's been uh, recent work looking at water isotopes that says, well, there are trees that are able to access groundwater, deeper pools of water that are disconnected from the surface soils and they're accessing these pools of water during times when they're becoming stressed and they need water. So I think that, you know, we haven't done that work at the Andrews, but I think that would be 
um, somehow if we could just look into the soil <laughs> and understand where do the roots go, where is the water, and how deep is it, and we would uh, know a lot more, but that's very difficult to do. Still so many questions. So for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to KBVR Corvallis 88.7, and uh, we're on the show here at Inspiration Dissemination talking to Carla Juretsky about her research on how water moves through the soil in this mountainous landscape of the Cascades. And uh, we've been talking a lot about her research and just kind of the interesting things she's been finding. And I want to come back to that and where you're, where you're headed next. But it's, you're obviously very enthusiastic about soil. And where, where does that come from? Nobody, I don't think anyone's really born being really excited about soil. Are, are you asking Carla where her roots are <laughs> in science? Oh, I am. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I think that my fascination for soil occurred when I started seriously working on a research project with a great mentor, Terry Lucky. And he, um, at the time, was a scientist and researcher at the University of Nebraska. And I was working for him full-time as a field and lab technician and he taught me how to analyze and work with uh, wetland soils. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at uh, the change in carbon over depth. And uh, yeah, the wetlands in Ohio have an interesting story. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was very enthusiastic about <laughs> the soils, the process. He, you know, I just learned a ton from him, but we sat down and looked at data together. And so I started you know, he was a storyteller. So mm -hmm. he, he loved to tell, talk about the history of the place, of the land. And I thought the history was really fascinating. Um, so that, you know, there's a bunch of different things that inspired me to, to do science, but I would say that is where uh, my roots in soil originated. <laughs> and that's where I learned a lot. And I still talk to Terry and, that's and incredible. Uh, work with him. So he's, he's a good mentor. Wow. I wonder, we were talking before the show about how many people we've interviewed who've worked in the H.J. Andrews Forest, but I also would be very curious, I'm a social scientist, and I would be very curious to know how many people we've interviewed that refer to a really key mentor that was passionate and that really mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, sparked their own enthusiasm and supported them in their efforts. I think I think that goes for a lot of us. I, I know I have mentors. What about you, Adrian? Definitely. I think I actually put out a tweet earlier today uh, that talked a lot about the two things that this radio show has shown me time and time again is, uh, one, your PI can make or break a career. <laughs> but two, <laughs> is that almost always there is a mentor in high school or undergraduate that says, hey, you should you know help me do research in the lab or you, know, you should really pursue that class yeah. more because you seem to really like it and you know that kind of interest from a teacher mm -hmm. or a mentor is is really uh influential in like kind of sparking a fire that was you know just a little wee flame that is why i love working with undergrads too and just working with them one-on-one -on -one, it can teach you a lot by you guys have probably had this experience when you teach something you you just learn it 
much better because <laughs> you have to explain it to someone that knows nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really good practice uh, to be a mentor when you're working, you know, when you're in graduate school. Um, but also it's just really fun to spark, you know, their interest in a certain thing. Like uh, they all have really wide ranging interests, but Mm -hmm. occasionally there will be someone that's excited about soil, which is rare, but (laughs) very fun (laughs) when that happens. So back to soil, uh, you weren't the first person in your family to have some kind of relationship with the soil. Your grandpa was a hobby farmer. Yes, he was. So maybe that's where my true roots are, is... <laughs> Those are your deep tap roots. Yes. <laughs> um, my grand... Yeah, Grandpa Dretzky, Jerome Dretzky, was a hobby farmer, and I remember working in the garden with him, uh, mostly harvesting things. Um, so he also had... Well, we still have in our family today. We call it the farm, and my dad works there, and he plants food for wildlife. Um, so it's in like a wildlife, uh, conservation program. And so my dad's sort of, that's, that sounds I'm pretty, watching my dad become my grandpa. Wow. <laughs> um, that sounds but, pretty, your dad sounds like a pretty cool guy. He's yeah. a cool guy. Hey dad, I think you're listening. <laughs> Hi dad. Hi mom. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, I think being outside with him and he, he definitely at a very young age taught me to be very independent and, explore so he would just sort of yeah go explore in the woods go see what you can find and you know just um would show me a lot of different things about you know growing vegetables and he was also an avid fisherman so just a lot of outside time and you explored a lot way beyond the farm where else did you go yeah (laughs) (laughs) love these lead-ups um So I took an interest in agriculture post-college. I graduated with my bachelor's in science in 2008. It was really difficult to find a job at that time. And so I decided I really wanted to travel and experience different culture. And I was intrigued by sustainable agriculture and just food culture in general. And so I went to Italy and worked on a farm there for eight months and learned a ton about farming uh, vegetables, raising animals. And um, yeah, I guess that still sticks with me today. Mm-hmm. I, I aspire to have a hobby farm myself one day. And, and that was through the whiffing program where you uh, go to these locations, you work on their farm, and as payment for your work, you get housed and you get fed. Correct. Is that right? Yeah, it was through, you, you know, that is how we got our, our insurance is through the woofing program. So mm-hmm. we, we were woofers, but it was also a unique internship program um, that had a lot of, you know, many people come to this farm. It's called Spinocchia, if anyone wants to look it up. Mm-hmm. And it's in Tuscany. And it was started by an Italian woman, an American man who, They married, and they started the Spinocchia Foundation. And so they raised money, you know, back in the U.S. um, to bring awareness to Italian culture, food, and sustainable ag. And so this farm was meant to be a place for people to come and learn. Mm. You know, young a lot of young 
people coming to learn how to farm, but also artists, creative writers, um, uh, various, I think uh, archaeology was big there for a while, but I think a lot of different, it's, it's a venue for creative uh, opportunities, I guess. Yeah. So they, they raise their money by like, you know, getting people to use that place as a venue for their program, but mm-hmm. then they also allow people to, anyone can go and stay there and eat great Italian food. That's and, awesome. and, you know, it's an air, it's like, um, a, a bread and bed and breakfast. Okay. So, um, it has, a, it wears a lot of different hats, I'd say, but it was, I mean, we worked directly with the Italian farmers and wow. it was fun. We learned Italian. We had language classes and <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you're obviously still passionate about sustainable agriculture and yeah. farming. And is that a part of your life here at, <clears throat> in your graduate research? Or do you do you hope to go back to maybe some farming when you're finished with your program? I definitely still aspire to go back to that and be a part of a community. I, I've struggled with that here if... Um, <laughs> For other graduate students out there, there's, you know, we only have so much time. But I've always wanted to work on a farm part-time here, volunteer. I think that would be really great. Um, but, yeah, I think I've learned a ton about foraging for food in the forest here. And mm. that's been sort of my creative expression of, the, <laughs> of food here. But, um yeah, I, I really, I hope I can be a part of a community like that again someday. But here it's been mostly focused on on research and various other hobbies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said something when we when we first met with you that you you love your research but in, are having a hard time with balancing that your love for agriculture and still mm-hmm. continuing research is is that the ultimate goal when you when you finish your program is trying to do a little bit of both yeah um yeah we shall see I <laughs> I really like research and so I hope you know that's my ultimate goal immediately I'd say in the near future is to continue on that path um I would love to be in a place someday where I could collaborate with people and a farming, you know, anything, you know, with sustainable agriculture, maybe grow vegetables with people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at at this point, I'm not sure how to make that a career, but potentially it could become part of my research even. And in the meantime, you've got to finish your research, right? What's the next, what's the next step? Oh, so many steps. Um, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. So I am currently taking, uh, I'm still doing field work. Uh, I think I'll be wrapping that up this fall, but I'm looking at tree cores and mm. analyzing carbon isotopes in tree rings to understand water stress. So that's kind of a final component of my research. And yeah, I, I guess writing, you can never stop writing in grad <laughs> school, I think uh, I've learned. And so I'm writing a lot, mm-hmm. I'm analyzing data, I'm doing field work and lab work. So I kind of have a lot of everything going on, which is 
it's great. It's it works out, so you never get bored. <laughs> <laughs> so in your writing, do you hope to kind of put those two pieces together—the variability in soil moisture and tree stress across the same landscape? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I I think it would be excellent to tell a really good story about mm-hmm. a place, but also tie it into something that um, can be translated in other places or, or, you know, it might not be solid findings, but it might provide new hypotheses. So we might have new questions from mm-hmm. this research and it can be like a platform for people to come in after me and look at things. And I've learned that that's that's how science works. It takes mm. a long time to get to, you know, a whole career sometimes to get to a place where you can solidly answer things about how the world works. And my advisors have been really good in showcasing that for me and with their talking about their own experiences with research. So, yeah, and and you said before too that's kind of what's special about H.J. Andrews is you're kind of building on this long-standing platform of information. People really have taken a lot of time and research effort to piece together a complicated story. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, so many fascinating stories about that place, and there's so much knowledge and creative expression happening there. So it's fun to be a part of a scientific community that's mostly based out of OSU. Um, I'm really lucky to work there. When did they start collecting data at H.J. Andrews again? 1948. Wow. Maybe even earlier, but wow. I, that's when H. That's when H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest started. But before that, there I I believe there was some data, uh, but it was under a different program. Okay. Yeah. So. And to put that into context, when when you guys first started talking about this in our first meeting you got really excited about how long of a data set that is. So is that really unique in, you know, this kind of field science? I'll give you a personal example. My master's project (laughs) was based on a field site with two years of data. And is that typical? Yeah, because master's projects are limited in time and scope. And, you know, I installed all the sensors myself. But being able to have a 40-year kind of a data set to work with uh, across a watershed right yeah. like I had one hillside right you know <laughs> right like one hillside that was perfectly manicured <laughs> versus like an entire watershed with you know water outputs precipitation stations bird populations wow. uh you know lichen con all kinds of measurements like Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have uh, Ali Swartz on in a couple weeks. She okay. does uh, river things in photosynthesis things. Wow. Also at HJA. Uh, yeah, well, we're going to tie her awesome. into your story too. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, every every person we talk to who does research there just helps support understanding how complex of an ecosystem we have in, in our climate and in the mountains here. And actually, now that you've described the diversity and complexity just in this small space you're hiking, it almost isn't surprising that you're not finding this generalizable Mm -hmm. trend. So Mm -hmm. really looking forward to kind of hearing more about your research as you process data. So thank you for telling us all about it. It's really exciting. Yeah, this was fun. getting more excitement about soil. But before we let you go, we have two traditions here on inspiration dissemination 
and is the first is to ask you if you have any advice that you would like to share uh, with our listeners, whether that's mm-hmm. you know other graduate students or <clears throat> undergrads thinking of grad school or your your previous self, <laughs> early early grad school self. Hmm. That's a great question. Okay, so I talked a, a bit about you know the creativity at the Andrews Forest mm-hmm. and. I would say an advi- advice I would give, would, well, remembering that science is a creative process and you can be, I think it's really good to step outside the box and and communicate your research to different audiences and in different ways. So the traditional ways to um communicate research results is through scientific manuscripts. You go to conferences and you give talks to other scientists. Um, I've learned by talking to various audiences at different places in different ways, like podcasts or going to museums or um, talking to undergraduates in a class, um, that you realize a lot and you get a lot of good ideas <laughs> through conversations with other people. Um, also, I'm a part of a PhD writer writing group with people oh. across campus. Um, so this is more specific to people, OSU students, or maybe any university might have this opportunity, but forming a writing group with people outside your discipline can be really great to understand, you know, good science communication to learn how to communicate your science. But I guess uh, apart from practicing science communication, just do things that outside the box that will <laughs> just make you, that so you don't lose your creative streak. Um, I think it's easy to burn out <laughs> in grad school. Yeah. And so I have different <laughs> ways of dealing with that, um, but I think you know, for me, I'm, I'm towards the end and I'm, I definitely feel it some days. I'm like, wow, I feel you know, like uh, this is super draining. Yeah. <laughs> do I want to do this today? <laughs> but I come here and I talk to you guys and it's like, I'm super excited again. Yeah. Or, um, you know, just even trying to do art or whatever your hobby is, just continue to do those mm-hmm. things to like have a good work-life balance to be creative and yeah, that would that be my advice. Excellent advice. Thank you. I'm, I don't know I'm if that was it. advice, <laughs> no, but that that's, was. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I think that's really good. Thank you. And then we have a second tradition, and the second one is to ask you for a song. And what song is it, and why did you choose it? Okay, my song, I remembered this song last night as I was having dinner with some friends. Um, it's by Cosmo Sheldrake. So he he has really fun music. The first time I heard his music, I just had this huge smile on my face. And <laughs> it's really playful and entertaining, and the lyrics are just amazing. And so I think he's just a really great artist, and the song is called The Moss. And I think it has some relevance for what we talked about just now. And also, it has this like spooky Halloweeny vibe, and I thought oh, oh, this fits for this week, kind of getting us in the mood of Halloween. <laughs> All right, that sounds perfect. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us, Carla, and for sharing this great song. So. 
for our listeners. Here is The Moss by Cosmo Sheldrake. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.